I'm Parker Moss, Chief Commercial Officer at Genomics England, and you're listening to The G Word. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we hope to share the benefits of genomic medicine with everyone. Now, genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses. Hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. We want to talk more about this word, the G word, or genomics. Now, today we'll have a conversation about why cancers occur, why they spread, and how research is contributing to the improved survival for patients around the world. We have on the line a real titan from the field, Professor Robert Weinberg. Professor, welcome to The G Word. Thank you for having me. I'm most flattered. Thank you, Bob. So it is such an honor to have you here. Bob, you have been professor in the MIT Department of Biology, where you've been since finishing your PhD in 1969. You're a founding member of the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research, and you're known for making some of the most landmark discoveries in the field of cancer, including discovering the first human oncogene, the RAS gene, and demonstrating its mechanism of action. And also you participated in the isolation of the first tumor suppressor gene, which was known about before, the RB gene, but you isolated it and um, demonstrated it. You've published hundreds of papers, but none more famous than the series called The Hallmarks of Cancer, uh, the first of which was published in Cell in 2000. Uh, and then you renewed uh, with the next generation Hallmarks paper in 2011. These provided a conceptual framework for the evolution of cancer, and they've been cited collectively over 100,000 times, making you one of the most cited and influential academics in biology today. You're a much-loved teacher, and your book on the biology of cancer is a seminal work in schools and universities around the world, and it sits on my shelf as well. Uh, we're really proud to have you join us on The G Word. Thank you, and welcome. As, as mentioned, I'm most flattered. Uh... I think your introduction was a bit over the top, but whatever. Well, we don't have guests like you every day, so uh, it's all very well deserved. And I would love uh, really to have our audience understand a little bit about you as a person, Bob, uh, because you've been, um, I think, a passionate teacher for many years. I'd love to understand um, what it is that you find so engaging about teaching. I've, I've heard you mention that it's a very important part of your research as well. So please tell us a little bit about your lengthy teaching career at MIT. Well, I, I grew up in an academic institution, MIT, which unlike many universities, uh, greatly values teaching in addition to research. In some universities, the professors say proudly, I don't have to teach. But in fact, at MIT, on the contrary, we place great value on teaching as part of the job description. And so uh, from the very beginning of, for example, my uh, graduate uh, pre-PhD work, I was involved in teaching of various sorts. During my uh, pre-doctoral studies, I actually took off from uh, MIT, went south to West Alabama, and there uh, spent a year teaching in a small black college. I was the entire biology department. I taught four courses a, a semester. I was exhausted at the end of each day, but it was exhilarating to be able to teach and explain things to young people. Um, and, and so that's transferred back into my life as a faculty member, where, as mentioned, I, I exist in an environment where teaching is highly valued and considered as important as one's research contributions. So, Bob, uh, was working in Alabama for a year during the civil rights movement something that's lived with you? 
uh, in the years since then? Well, um, it has on both on the point of view of uh, social equity of the people whom I taught there, the children of sharecroppers, and on the other hand, uh, feeling the need, as I do when I teach, to put myself in the minds of the listeners and ask, what can they actually understand given their backgrounds and what needs to be explained, even highly elementary things? Uh, I might say, by the way, that when I go to scientific meetings, I can often tell from the lecturers at these meetings whether or not they teach, because often scientists who talk about their work but who don't teach are almost incomprehensible because they don't make the accommodations to the uh, listener that are critical to understanding even elementary things. Well, I hope you don't mind me saying that um, I think that comes across in your written papers as well. And in fact, your your first Hallmarks of Cancer paper was the first cancer paper that I ever read in um, as I've been a student of biology. And uh, it's it's clear that you really do like to hold the hand of the reader and help them understand the field as you as you go along. So perhaps we can do that for our listeners today. And I wanted to start um, with really one of the most fundamental uh, questions that many patients with cancer have, which is why indeed does cancer start to begin with? Well, uh, we are a bit of a contraption, uh, we humans, indeed we mammals, indeed um, all animals on the planet. Uh, in the case of human beings, we are uh, three times 10 to the 13th cells, that's 30,000 billion cells. Our cells uh, proliferate, um, 10 to the 16th times in, in a lifetime, that's 10 million billion times. Each time a cell proliferates, there's a danger because when the cell proliferates, something may go awry, including, for example, damaged copies of DNA arising. And such damaged copies, in turn, can actually predispose a cell to becoming cancerous. If we lived long enough, given what I've just told you, all of us would get cancer sooner or later. It would simply be the manifestation of chaos in what is outwardly at least a very well-ordered system. So in, in some ways, it, it is staggering that more of us actually don't get cancer. I think you've written often about this um, equipoise between births and deaths of cells, and, and that's actually central to the discoveries you've made with oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. And perhaps you can explain that. Yes, indeed. Um, I, I just remind our listeners that when cells uh, multiply, they copy their DNA. And that copying of DNA is almost perfect, but it is slightly imperfect and leaves behind certain errors in the DNA. And, and when that happens, one has the possibility that the miscopied DNA will begin to drive a cell to proliferate uncontrollably. To be sure, there are multiple such mistakes that are required in aggregate in order to persuade a cell to start growing uncontrollably. But if and when that happens, we can begin to have and can begin to experience the chaos that accompanies uh, and drives the formation of, of cancer. And I believe that that describes nicely the role of, uh, of the oncogene. And, uh, and, and could you explain how tumor suppressor genes fit into that same picture? Well, when we talk about damaged DNA, we, we must eventually get specific about the kinds of genes that are damaged. Specifically, in the case of cancer, the genes that are responsible for um, controlling whether or not a cell proliferates. We have to realize that each cell in our body, and I mentioned there are 10 to the 16th of them going through cell divisions in a lifetime, each cell in the body is controlled by the DNA it carries. There is no central regulator. Its genome 
is the determinant of providing the description, the, the blueprint of whether or not a cell should divide. And since a cell is constantly consulting the genome that it carries, if there are uh, mistakes in copying the genome sequences, the sequences of DNA, that is, then it may be receiving faulty instructions. Given all that, we can begin to discuss the kinds of genes whose damage actually leads or predisposes a cell to becoming cancerous. And here uh, we can mention prominently uh, proto-oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. Proto-oncogenes, when they're damaged, actually become oncogenes and once damaged, begin to issue instructions that drive a cell forward, proliferating uncontrollably. And the counterbalance to these proto-oncogenes and derived mutant oncogenes uh, represents uh, genes of the class of tumor suppressor genes whose function it is to actually slow down and halt cell proliferation. If these are damaged by mutation, then uh, similarly, the cell has lost its ability to shut down or control its own proliferation. So there are two countervailing groups of genes, which we can analogize to the accelerator pedal on a car, the throttle on the one hand, and the braking system on the other hand, i.e. the uh, oncogenes are really stuck accelerator pedals that are forcing a cell to proliferate uh, uncontrollably and relentlessly. And the uh, tumor suppressor genes are the brake linings of the, um, of, of the cell. And if they are damaged in one way or another, similarly, a cell is unable to control its own forward pell-mell uh, proliferation. That's fascinating, isn't it? And uh, so you've explained that um, it is inevitable that we will get occasional mutations given the number of cells and the number of cell divisions during during lifetime. And that somewhat explains also why cancer is a disease of aging as our mitotic clock continues and we accumulate more and more of these divisions. Um, some people might still consider it unfortunate that we have these cancerous events and that our immune system doesn't pick it up. But would you say that um, um, these mutations are, in a sense, the price we have to pay for speciation, for, for, for evolution that has led us to... Uh, to essentially be kind of uh, modern humans. Well, uh, th these mutations are the price that all animals must pay, starting with jellyfish all the way up to us. When cell proliferation goes on, um, the cells are given a small degree of autonomy, and those semi-autonomous cells, which we carry throughout our body and which together constitute our tissues, uh, these the cells are, are obviously um, susceptible to all kinds of misbehavior. In general, we have many defense mechanisms, including, by the way, the immune system, that acts to prevent or constrain the outgrowth of tumors. But no defense system, including the immune system, is perfect. And therefore, there are occasional cells that grow out, variant cells that begin to proliferate uncontrollably and that somehow are not weeded out. Given what I've just said, it is highly plausible, indeed it is undoubtedly the case, that as we grow older, we acquire in tissues throughout our body mutant cells that have predilection in principle to subsequently become cancerous. And indeed, if you, do, uh, if you look at autopsies of individuals as they grow older, uh, individuals begin to acquire precancerous growths in various sites throughout the body. And thank God, uh, these precancerous growths actually never develop into full-blown cancers. 
and therefore never become clinically apparent. Well, I think that's a really good segue to move on from why primary tumors develop, um, but why only some of those become metastatic and invasive uh, tumors. And of course, uh, sadly, it is the invasive metastatic cancers that typically end up killing patients, not the primary tumor. So um, I know you've spent a lot of your research career understanding the mechanism of metastases, and perhaps you could talk us through a little bit of that science. Well, uh, there are many kinds of cancers that arise in different tissue types throughout the body. They have been enumerated, and, and depending on who you are and how fine you split hairs, there are between two and 400 distinct types of cancer, depending on the normal cells of origin of, of those cancers. And by saying that, I mean to indicate that the cells in a tumor are the direct descendants of previously normal cells in one tissue or another. Given all that, in multiple kinds of cancers, as the tumors grow, they begin to disseminate, they begin to dispatch cells to other sites in the body. And that dissemination is called metastasis. Uh, that is to say, individual cells or small clumps of cells may depart, break away from a primary tumor where the cancer first started, and travel through the lymph or more often the blood system land in distant tissues, and these cells may, albeit with very low probability, succeed in forming a new colony of cancer cells, those that colony being called a metastasis. As you implied, uh, the great majority, as much as 90% of cancer-associated death, uh, derives not from primary tumors, but instead from the distant metastases that have seeded themselves elsewhere in the body in various tissues. Given that, uh, one confronts the question of uh, what is it that causes a primary tumor or its constituent cells to disseminate? Well, why do they actually leave? And this is probably a, a different story in each kind of tumor. But to generalize, if we talk about carcinomas that together represent about 80% of uh, the causes of cancer-associated deaths, as they grow, they develop around themselves a, an inflamed reactive tissue. And the reactive tissue, in turn, impinges on the cancer cells and persuades them to assume the guise of cells that are in the midst of wound healing. And uh, this wound healing program, for uh, complex reasons, enables cells to acquire the attributes that they need in aggregate to actually uh, float away, to disseminate. And these aggregates include uh, the abilities uh, and exhibit the abilities to invade locally. That is, the primary tumor uh, sends cells that invade into the localized surrounding tissue. Some of those cells may, ha by happenstance, enter into blood vessels. Uh, and these cells, uh, once they're in blood vessels, may be carried by the blood, for example, to distant tissues where they become lodged and, again, with a very low probability, succeed in forming a colony of descendants, that is, a full-blown uh, metastatic colony, which, depending on where it is located, may become actually life-threatening eventually as it grows in size. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to um, think about a, 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 cell, a primary tumor beginning to metastasize as a wound. And I've read in your, in your literature that you sometimes describe um, cancer cells as wounds that never heal. Yes, indeed, that, that is a, a remark made by one of my colleagues here in, uh, in Boston already more than three decades ago. 
that it's not as if cancer cells are so clever that they can cobble together all the attributes that they need in order to metastasize. And there are multiple different um, uh, attributes that cancer cells need to acquire in order to become um, a metastatic. You might think cancer cells are very clever in assembling this whole entourage of, of attributes. But in fact, uh, what cancer cells do is simply turn on a wound healing program that is present naturally in um, all cells and is activated normally in response to tissue wounding. And cancer cells simply turn on this normally silent, this normally latent cell biological program, and in so doing, acquire a whole suite of traits that in aggregate uh, empower them to invade and metastasize. And I believe that that program is what you've uh, written about and described as, as the epithelial mesenchymal transition. Um, and I understand for, for effective metastasis to happen, a, a primary cell has to be somewhere right in the middle of being epithelial, so like a cell surface, and being mesenchymal, which is more like a, a connective tissue. Is that is that the right description? I, I think that really approximates closely what actually happens. In fact, we know that in an epithelial tissue, and when I for, refer to epithelial, I refer to layers of cells that, for example, uh, cover the skin, cover the inside lining of various organs throughout the body, including various kinds of ducts. Um, when these epithelial cells uh, suffer damage in normal tissue, then they move from a state where they form cell layers, cell sheets, to a state where they form individual cells, they disaggregate, which now acquire motility. And when I talk about motility, I talk about the ability to uh, move around and to invade into adjacent tissues. And so when uh, cancer cells turn on this cell biological program, which because of what I've just described is called the epithelial mesenchymal transition, or as one says in the trade, the EMT, cancer cells now assume a mesenchymal state. And in that state, they exhibit many of the traits that we know are associated with the carcinoma cells, uh, indeed the, the high-grade tumors that eventually spawn metastases. Interestingly, when um, cancer cells activate the EMT program, which has previously lain in a latent state in those cells, activate it, then they acquire these mesenchymal attributes and they can invade and metastasize. Once they land in, in a distant tissue, they may revert from the mesenchymal state that they had temporarily acquired into the epithelial state of their ancestors, thereby creating a metastatic colony at distant sites that contains both um, epithelial and mesenchymal descendants, and thereby recapitulating the architecture of the primary tumor in which both uh, epithelial and mesenchymal cell types are present. Importantly for our discussion and all that follows, when cells move from an epithelial state to a mesenchymal state, that does not represent, nor does it depend on the damage to their DNA. Their DNA sequences are unaffected, and therefore you can consider this a non-genetic or epigenetic process. Um, this is a cell biological process that occurs by turning on some genes, turning off other genes, and again, leaving the sequence of the DNA, the, the genome, unmolested, unaltered, unmutated. That is fascinating, and I'd love to return to that a little bit more when we talk about some of our programs at Genomics England. Um, but it's clearly very important that this is a, 
a, a transcriptional process or an epigenetic process. So let's come back to that. But I, I felt that you said something uh, very interesting about this uh, EMT state and the fact that some characteristics of epithelial tissue can form and then uh, create new architectures in other organs. And that is why I believe that pathologists, for example, exploring brain metastases from a primary lung tumor can actually see patterns of, of, of lung tissue in, in patients' brains from biopsies, which is remarkable. And that leads me to want to ask you, do we understand why certain cancers take kind of well-trodden metastatic pathways, for example, from the lung to the brain or from the breast to the bones, uh, but not from the breast to other organs? Uh, why are those pathways so well-trodden? Well, uh, what I've referred to before is sometimes termed the invasion metastasis cascade. And the early parts of that invasion metastasis cascade, that representing a succession of multiple steps that enables an aggregate cancer cells to seed themselves in distant tissues, that is, to disseminate, uh, we kind of understand what's going on there. But what happens thereafter represents a very complex mystery because once a cancer cell, for example, uh, a primary breast tumor, uh, seeds itself in the bone marrow, which is often the case, then that cancer cell, being uh, having grown up in, in the mammary gland, will have to figure out how to make a living in its new home. And at the moment of its arrival in the bone marrow, it is poorly adapted to survive in that novel a tissue environment or microenvironment, as it's often called. And so the vast majority of physically disseminated cells, even though they get to the bone marrow, are, are, are unable to begin to proliferate because they confront unfamiliar surroundings, the tissue environment around them, and they are, are unable to adapt to all the requirements that are needed in aggregate for a cell to thrive and to proliferate within the bone marrow or within the brain or within the liver or the lungs. And so uh, this process of adaptation uh, is a very complex one, and it represents, to my mind, the surviving major mystery of metastasis, not how cells get to distant tissues, but rather how they thrive and proliferate in those tissues once they've arrived. As an example, l let's talk about breast cancer. 30% of women who have primary breast tumors have thousands and thousands of disseminated cells in their bone marrow. But only half of those women will ever develop metastatic disease, testifying to the inability of the great majority of disseminated cancer cells to figure out how to make a living in an unfamiliar territory, in this case, let's say the bone marrow. It's a complex process that we really understand in only fragmentary fashion. And I, th I think that phenomenon you described is even more um... Uh, kind of visible um, through autopsies of uh, men with prostate cancer, early stage prostate cancer. Is that correct? Yes, indeed. Uh, th there's a yet, a, yet another measure of um, complexity, and that is that most cancers don't actually uh, develop to a stage where they become uh, metastatic. So let's return to primary tumors. In this case, we can turn to the prostate car carcinomas. As men get older, especially in the Western world, uh, small uh, nests of carcinoma cells appear in their prostate. Prostate cancer is not a, a good thing to have, but one has to begin to appreciate its importance if one takes autopsy studies of, of men, let's say, who die at the age of 80 in Western world. And 80% of men who uh, are surveyed on, on the autopsy 
in the Western world at the age of 80 have uh, small nests of cancer cells in their prostate. From that perspective, 80% of those men have uh, prostate uh, cancer. But the truth is that only 3% of men die from prostate cancer. And that only tells us that the great majority of incipient prostate tumors actually never develop to a stage where they become uh, aggressive and life-threatening. The same can be said for uh, breast cancer, for example. So these cells remain in that epithelial state and never transition towards mesenchymal um, cells. So what, what does that tell us then about all of this enthusiasm and excitement for early detection programs, which, um, after all, seek to be really a panacea um, for death from late-stage cancer by creating a stage shift where we can detect many more patients at an early stage. Does that affect your enthusiasm for early detection as a field? Well, if we look at the development of a primary tumor, that primary tumor development is itself a process of multiple steps. Um, first, the, the tumor is, develops into a benign growth, benign referring to the fact that it's not invasive and aggressive, and eventually the benign growth becomes actively aggressive and uh, undertakes to uh, disseminate via the process of metastasis. The question is then, uh, how often does uh, that occur? And can one short-circuit the process? Can one prevent the, the process by finding primary tumors before they've had a chance to physically disseminate, to metastasize? And in fact, this is very successful in certain cases and not so successful in others. Um, in the case of uh, colorectal cancer, the colonoscopy, which is uh, often performed every several years in the West, to look for colonic polyps, which are the early stage precursors of frank colon carcinomas, that can, if it's properly done, can reduce the eventual development of carcinomas in some, uh, in some clinics by 70, maybe even 80%, because one can look into the colon of an individual, remove the polyps, and thereby remove the uh, growths, the medine growths that are the precursors of eventual uh, colorectal carcinomas, the latter being actively life-threatening if they begin to metastasize. So their early detection in the form of one's ability to um, find a, a, a premalignant growth, that is a polyp in the colon, is really critical. However, in other tissues, it's not so clear. I just gave you an example of finding of benign prostate cancers, which, as mentioned before, um, never in general in, in, in a normal lifespan develop into aggressive growths. But trying to detect and remove all them would seem to be a fool's errand because the great majority of them are never going to be clinically important. One can move over to the area, to, to the arena of breast cancer. And there one also has uh, questions about the proportion of early stage tumors that eventually develop into uh, life-threatening growths. And here, this is a hotly debated issue. Does early detection, for example, in the case of mammography, um, actually reduce eventual uh, death rate? And there are hot debates on this topic. Uh, some people say that if one looks at the very real reduction in death rates from breast cancers, which has happened over the last two decades, a significant advance, 35% reduction in death rates from breast cancer. This is clearly a major victory of cancer researchers. But then the question is, um, who is responsible for this success? Uh, success has many parents. Uh, failure is an orphan, as one often says. And so we need to um, identify 
the, the sources. If you ask, if you look at the statistics and you ask the experts, why has there been this profound reduction in breast cancer deaths? There are multiple, very credible, mathematically demonstrable causes of this uh, reduction in breast, breast cancer mortality. And these include um, the cessation of hormone replacement therapy, uh, exirradiation of the fields where primary tumors arose, chemotherapy, um, use of monoclonal antibodies such as Herceptin. And if you go through this list of four or five uh, factors that together have conspired to create this reduction in a very real reduction in, in breast cancer mortality, uh, at the bottom of the list is mammography. And there are some people who say that mammography um, really hasn't contributed quantitatively to uh, the significant reduction in breast cancer mortality. Some people argue, and I'm sure I will get in hot water by saying this, that 80% of breast cancers that arise in the female breast would never become life-threatening if they remained uh, undiagnosed and sat quietly in the breasts of the women who have developed them for a, a full lifespan. This then raises the question of how you can know whether if one detects an early stage tumor, whether or not that tumor will eventually become life-threatening. Does one uh, treat it in the clinic aggressively or does one just uh, let it sit uh, quietly? Uh, in the case of prostate cancer, that's often known as watchful waiting, just to observe the tumor and see whether it actually grows or not. Uh, sometimes the treatment of primary tumors is actually w worse than the cure. It may be that the treatment for uh, prostate cancer uh, may cause a much greater discomfort and distress than there is a comparable reduction in mortality from the tumor. This is uh, fascinating, so important, I think, uh, particularly uh, with your example of breast cancer, where it sounds from what you're saying that many women's uh, um, uh, primary breast tumors stay in this epithelial state. Um, and it makes me wonder, with all of your research into the epithelial mesenchymal transition, whether there are potentially clinical biomarkers that can identify the transcription factors um, that are either there or not there. Uh, that would determine whether breast tumors are going to become metastatic so that we can rely on that rather than the cruder measure of a, of a mammogram to, to predict whether um, a tumor is going to become metastatic. Well, precisely as you say, there have been studies over the last two decades which look at the genes that are on and the genes that are off in a, a primary breast tumor. Uh, one says that they are either transcribed or not transcribed. And this pattern of transcription of genes, some being on, some being off, provides a clue as to whether those cells have the tendency, the proclivity, to eventually become aggressive and metastatic. Um, of course, one cannot know so with, with great certainty. It's only a probabilistic uh, measurement. But already more than a decade ago, uh, there have been uh, computer algorithms developed, which are able, for example, in the Netherlands, to segregate uh, breast cancer patients into two groups, 50-50 groups, equal size groups. In one of these groups, the, um, the, the price paid by active intervention uh, is actually greater than the probability of those women ever developing life-threatening disease. And so those women are subjected to watchful waiting. In the other 50%, it's quite ambiguous. Will those women uh, develop uh, cancers that become aggressive on the basis of one's measurement of the genes that are turned on or off in their primary breast cells. 
And in that case, it's kind of equivocal whether they will or will not eventually develop metastatic breast cancer. And given that lack of total certainty, in that 50%, one intervenes aggressively, even though it's clear that even among that 50%, the majority of the patients will never develop metastatic disease. But that's not something one can say, at least at present, with any certainty. Um, and this has massive implications for the research that we are doing at uh, Genomics England. And um, as I think we've discussed in the past, Bob, you know, Genomics England was really set up as a whole genome sequence-based organization that um, studied tumor normal pairs of cancer and rare disease patients going forward. But we've just been revising our, our um, scientific research strategy, and uh, we are definitely uh, now looking beyond DNA uh, to uh, gene expression, uh, proteomics, uh, immunophenotyping, and, and other assays that are potentially more serial in nature. Um, and it sounds to me from what you're saying that um, you would support efforts to add gene expression or transcriptomics to our assays. And maybe you could expand a little bit about that, and I will make sure that our, um, our payers and paymasters uh, uh, hear the words that you say. What, what, what do you think we should be targeting in, in future assays on top of DNA? This question raises the issue of what actually determines the current and future behavior of cancer cells. One might say, if one followed up from what we discussed early on in our chat today, that it's mutation in certain genes in the genomes of, um, of cancer cells. That is, they undergo uh, changes in the sequence of bases in the DNA, and these mutant genomes predispose and determine the behavior of the cancer cell. And that on its own is certainly logical and reasonable, but one can pose a different kind of question. What determines actually uh, much of the behavior of the individual cancer cell? Is it the mutant genes that it has acquired? Alternatively, is it uh, the, uh, the cell biological programs that are turned on as cancer cells evolve to a greater and greater uh, in aggressive state? Earlier on, we talked about the EMT, the epithelial mesenchymal transition, and how in the case of carcinoma cells, it confers on carcinoma cells the ability to invade and metastasize. That program, when it's turned on, does, is not turned on as a consequence of damage to DNA. Instead, it is turned on as a consequence of changes in whether genes are read out or not read out. That is the process that is generically termed transcription. And... Um, when a gene is transcribed, that does not depend on changes in the sequence of the bases of its DNA. As a consequence, one might begin to speculate, not so unreasonably, that the majority of the traits of the def definable, distinguishable traits of a cancer cell late in metastatic progression are determined not by the mutations it carries, but rather by the genes that it has turned on and off. And in the case of uh, a number of cancers, including notably breast cancer, it could be that the great majority of the definable traits of the aggressive cancer cells actually depend on the turning on and turning off the transcription of a variety of genes. And so uh, one needs to include uh, these transcriptomics, that is the, the science and the art of measuring whether genes are turned on or off in one's calculation as to whether a given cancer cell is or is not predisposed to eventually becoming malignant, and indeed has already become malignant, through changes that do not depend upon, do not derive directly from mutation of sequences in its DNA.
Okay, that's very important for us. And I will make sure that we quote you in our updated science strategy. I, I would love to ask, um, because the technology in transcriptomics has become so refined and sensitive recently that we now have a choice between doing kind of bulk transcriptomics um, and also looking at single cell transcriptomics, the gene expression of each individual cell, uh, which is clearly a much uh, more, it's a, a lower throughput and more expensive process. Um, is there anything um, in your lab that would evidence whether it's worth um, the investment in, in uh, time and capital in performing single cells sequencing? Or do you think bulk transcriptomics is, is sufficient to find these, these clinical biomarkers? Well, uh, one can respond in, in different ways. Uh, one question is whether bulk transcriptomics, which involves grinding up a tumor and analyzing the genes that are turned off and on, in a variety of cell types in the tumor, provides them with useful diagnostic um, information. In other words, do these uh, bulk transcriptomic analyses, checking on genes that are described both in cancer cells and on the recruited normal cells in the tumor that are brought in by the cancer cells to support their own proliferation. And therefore, the tumor, by implication, is a mixture of distinct cell types only a subset of which are actual cancer cells. And uh, such bulk transcriptomics would not seem to provide a clear resolution as to how uh, aggressive the individual carcinoma cells are, but the jury is still out to my mind. It could be that bulk transcriptomics will actually provide very useful prognostic indications. And when I say prognostic, will it provide useful predictors of the eventual evolution of the tumor? or the already existing evolution of the tumor. Um, more um, definitive might well be um, taking uh, individual cells from a tumor, including notably uh, cancer cells, and examining the uh, array of genes that are expressed in individual cancer cells um, through the process of what's called a single cell RNA sequencing. That will provide, to some extent, a definitive measurement of the actual biological state of the cancer cells, where if one looks at individual cancer cells, that readout is not compromised by the presence of non-tumor cells, non-cancer cells within the same tumor. And so that could be more definitive. But again, one has to be pragmatic. Which ones of these measurements will be more useful in providing prognostic information? Bulk measurements of all the uh, different cell types in a tumor or single cell transcriptomics to my mind, uh, one still does not know which one actually is more useful. It's clear that bulk transcriptomics is much cheaper and, and more accessible, uh, technically, logistically, and that may on its own provide the critical information we need to be able to uh, predict the future behavior of a cancer and whether or not that cancer should be treated aggressively. Well, that seems like just the type of hypothesis that uh, genomics England are well placed to explore. So thank you for that suggestion of, of a future research study. And on the, on the subject of pragmatism, um, it sounds like depending on which cancer you have, early detection programs may be more or less successful. So um, if, if in many cancers early detection is not the panacea, um, then uh, are we really dependent on, on waiting for brilliant cancer biologists like you to come and cure cancers? Or are there other interventions that you think are important that we put into place um, to reduce the incidence of uh, cancer and cancer deaths? Well, Parker, here one needs to uh, come to grips with the fact 
that in the case of many kinds of cancers, let's say uh, pancreatic cancer, the cancer is first uh, diagnosed after it has already spread. And so the vast majority of uh, patients that are uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer have at the moment of this diagnosis already uh, disseminated cancer cells in other sites in the body, in the case of pancreatic cancer, let's say in the liver. And therefore, predicting future um, metastatic dissemination in those patients is fruitless because it's already taken place um, uh, at the time of initial diagnosis. As one says, the, the cow has already gotten out of the barn. Um, that having been said, it forces us to confront the, the grim reality that we need to figure out a way of treating those aggressive tumors that have already spread at the time of initial diagnosis. And um, while I, I do not count myself among the so-called brilliant uh, cancer researchers whom you allude to, the fact is the, the burden is now on their shoulders to devise ways to actually kill those pancreatic cancer cells with agents that do not at the same time kill the patient that carries them. That's not so easily done. There are lots of people working on this now from various angles, and I'm optimistic over the next decade, one will find some truly miraculous ways of treating some aggressive cancer cells, both through new chemical agents, new drugs, as well as, even more exciting, new kinds of immunotherapy, which hold the promise of treating very aggressive cancers highly effectively. I'd love to come back to um, immunotherapy and, and kind of advanced um, therapeutic modalities. But I suppose the, just for the sake of completeness, the life, lifestyle changes is the other tool that we have in the box that we, sh we shouldn't forget. Is, would you support that statement? Well, uh, let's just talk about some simple facts. Ultimately, changes in lifestyle factors could have effects in reducing cancer mortality, which are vastly larger than anything that my friends and I could devise in terms of treating existing cancers. So one should not forget that for one moment. We have uh, cancer death rates have decreased notably in the United States over the last 10 or 15 years. And the oncologists uh, take all the credit for that. But the truth of the matter is much of that has come from changes in lifestyle, for example, reductions in tobacco smoking. If uh, um, people like myself could achieve reductions in mortality through our research, that were comparable to what was achieved from people stopping smoking, we would be ecstatic. The truth is uh, we cannot, and that reminds us that uh, even though 20% uh, of people now die from cancer in Western societies, that could be reduced down to 10% if we simply altered the way we lived um, and therefore reduced the incidence of the cancer, that is the, the rate with which they first appear. The fact is that uh, we now already know changes in, in tobacco use and in diet um, would already have a very substantial effect in reducing the incidence of a whole variety of life-threatening tumors. The question is, are people willing to uh, make these changes? They're not all that onerous, but we all must realize such changes would be vastly more effective than what the cancer researchers can offer up over the next several years in terms of being able to uh, develop um, life-protecting therapies. Cigarette smokers may say to themselves, I can smoke as long as I want, because by the time I get a lung cancer, uh, they will, these guys will have developed new kinds of therapy, effective therapy, and such people are whistling in the wind. I think uh, they're deluding themselves because uh, they're uh, stopping uh, cigarette smoking would be instantly vastly more effective 
than anything that my friends and I could come up with in terms of treating lung tumors. That's, uh, I think, a very important reminder to everyone uh, that lifestyle still matters uh, an enormous amount. But it is also a reminder of how long the timeframes are in developing um, strategies and therapies in, in cancer research. And that makes me want to ask you about your, your seminal papers, the Hallmarks of Cancer papers. And, and if I were to put this in a little bit of context, um, I think it was in uh, 1972 that, um, that Nixon came up with the really the clarion call to, um, with his, with his uh, war on cancer program uh, to come up with a, a mechanistic understanding for cancer. Um, and 28 years later, with your first Hallmark paper, I, I think you finally uh, did address uh, many of those mechanistic questions uh, that still, uh, 21 years after the publication of your first paper, serve um, as the model and the language for how many people describe cancer today. So I suppose my question for you is this. Um, you know, at Genomics England, we focus a lot on structure. We look, for example, at structural variation in genomes. And, and in the press in the last uh, year or so, there have been huge number of excitements about structural discoveries. So, for example, uh, DeepMind and their, their discovery of the um, being able to predict the structure of proteins from amino acid strings with their uh, remarkable alpha fold algorithm. But you focus much less on structure and more on function. And, and I just wondered if there's an important message for that. Um, and if it's true to characterize your, your lifelong passion as a, as a passion for the function of biology. This uh, discussion of structure versus function um, really uh, relates to the, the major uh, questions of biology. Can one understand the structure of a biological entity, which is either a cell or a molecule or the structures within a cell? And how does that relate to the function? How does that thing actually operate? And here there's a matters of taste. Uh, my bottom line has always been, can we really understand the operations of a system um, independent of knowing all the details of its physical structure? One can study the structure of the genome, which uh, organizations like Genomics England is focused on and has yielded some very interesting results. Those observations may or may not yield insights into biological function. Changes in the structure of the genome lead to a cell behaved, behaving differently. Recently, instead of studying DNA, one has studied proteins. Proteins do the actual work of individual genes. Genes themselves are only simply bits of information. And so the, the structure of proteins has proven to be critical to understanding how they actually operate, how they actually function. And until now, it's been quite elusive what the structure of many proteins is uh, in within a cell. When I was a PhD student, I went around with a professor. I carried his briefcase to lectures whose goal it was to try to understand the structure of individual proteins from their component parts, the so-called amino acid sequences. And that was in the uh, mid-1960s. So that's really literally six decades ago. And that, uh, that never succeeded until the last couple of years when work, largely I believe in the UK, has finally solved the problem using artificial intelligence and neural networks and has resulted in a a brilliant advance uh, to my part. In the UK, one overuses the word brilliant for almost anything anyone says, but to my mind, it is also appropriate um, that this was a brilliant advance forward 
because the information that they now have using their artificial intelligence and neural networks now enables them to increasingly predict the structures of literally hundreds of thousands of different proteins that are manufactured in the biosphere. And with that, with those structures, one gains insights into how those individual proteins actually function, insights that have not previously been possible. This brings us back to the whole issue of cancer treatment, because if one wishes to develop, for example, drugs, uh, low molecular weight compounds that are targeted to specific malfunctioning proteins, it's very useful to know the structure of those individual proteins, because those structures give insight into the pockets in the protein, the little indentations that are uh, capable of binding drug molecules. These molecules, once having been bound, now shutting down the further uh, actions of that protein, that targeted protein. And so with the advent now of these structures, one can begin to uh, understand why a certain low molecular weight drug molecules succeed in binding to a protein and why others don't. Um, something that's previously not been possible because we were ignorant in large part of, of, of the structures of many proteins. To be sure, X-ray crystallography revealed many of these structures, but now uh, it will soon become straightforward and routine to know with increasing precision what the structures of proteins uh, are. Now, how does that relate to cancer? Well, in my own case, um, we uh, worked on the RAS oncogene and RAS protein, the latter doing the work of the oncogene, starting in uh, the early 1980s. To my great uh, distress, to my great disappointment, that work that we began working on uh, in, 19, uh, in the early 1980s really had minimal effects on our increasing ability to treat human cancers. Uh, that is to say, identifying a gene, let's say the RAS oncogene, did not lead as a uh, day follows night to the development of a new kind of therapy. Why? Because the RAS oncoprotein, the gene made by the RAS oncogene, does not or did not seem to be druggable. And when drug developers use that term, they mean that the protein presents a structure that allows low molecular weight drug molecules to bind tightly to that structure and shut down the uh, operations of that targeted protein. And the fact is that the RAS um, oncoprotein did not have any of the welcoming pockets and little harbors that enable a drug molecule to bind tightly to that molecule and shut down the, the operations of the RAS uh, molecule. There are other uh, proteins, such as uh, uh, oncogene proteins called kinases, which do have such pockets. And there, there has been very successful and uh, indeed highly uh, brilliant advances made in designing drug molecules that can bind tightly to the kinase molecules, which provide the engines for the growth of many kinds of cancer cells. So uh, now for the first time, one has a much wider range of possible targetable, targetable um, oncoproteins because one can now predict their structure. And knowing that structure, one can design using complex computer algorithms, the structures of drug molecules that can bind tightly to uh, those uh, <clears throat> targeted oncoproteins. 
Well, you've said a lot there. I'm sure that Demis Hasibus, who runs the uh, the team at um, DeepMind that created AlphaFold, this algorithm that predicted, predicts protein structures, and he works just a few hundred meters from uh, where I'm sitting today. He would be delighted that you're quoting the achievements of his team. You referred then to one of the genes that actually was one of your first major discoveries, the RAS oncogene. And I believe your colleague, Harold Varmus, uh, has spent many, many years uh, creating investments in the National Cancer Institute to research RAS. And as you've mentioned, sadly, with um, very few um, RAS inhibitors coming to market and showing any success. But it's not, uh, it, it's not all disappointment. I think um, another one of the genes that you uh, works on early in your career, admittedly, in, in rats, has had enormous success. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, the new Onco gene that was a, a major part of your discovery journey. Well, in, in the early 1980s, uh, we had already de uh, detected uh, the RAS oncogene in protein, and we continued in that trajectory, and we found a novel uh, oncogene in oncoprotein that was present in uh, rat brain tumors that had been induced when uh, rat pups were exposed in utero in the womb to a certain uh, carcinogenic molecules. And uh, these were, we thought they were neuroblastomas, and therefore we called the gene, the oncogene that was damaged by uh, the, the, the chemical uh, carcinogen, we called it NEU, N-E-U. And it was quite interesting. We could actually uh, find a, a protein made by the NEU oncogene. We could actually make antibodies to it. And we could actually shut down the growth of new driven tumors by taking antibodies against the new protein, applying those to the cancer cells and showing that those antibodies on their own could shut down tumor growth. That was a, a rather miraculous for us, at least, because it represented effectively a cure, to be sure, a cure for a, an obscure rat tumor. I never had the insight, uh, regrettably, to think this might be useful for human cancer, given the obscurity of the tumor type. But for better or worse, I was terribly wrong because within four or five years, others found the human counterpart of the rat new gene, uh, and it came to be called HER2, and found that it was overexpressed, that is transcribed at a high level in a subset of human breast cancers. And so they developed an antibody against the human version of the new protein much like we had developed uh, an antibody against the rat version and demonstrated that it had very useful traits in shutting down the proliferation of um, <clears throat> a certain subset of breast cancer cells, the antibody being called Herceptin, um, uh, coming from the name HER2, human epidermal growth factor receptor uh, version 2. And this has proven to be a big boon in, in breast cancer uh, treatment it's one of the causes of the reduced mortality uh, from breast cancer. And as I often say, if I would had the insight to uh, further explore uh, the involvement of this rat new protein in human cancer development, I would be uh, walking around in very nice clothes right now and living in a very beautiful house. It never occurred to me that others would one day make literally tens of billions of dollars from developing this Herceptin antibody and applying it in oncology clinics throughout the world. I mean, I, I can't tell you how honored it, I feel to be speaking to the person who, who discovered new, which was the precursor, or at least the rat analog to uh, HER2. And it's, um, it seems suspicious that we're having uh, 
this conversation on this week because I'm not sure if you're aware, but only this weekend um, that has just passed, I was in Chicago at this year's ASCO um, and Daiichi uh, alongside AstraZeneca announced uh, the long-awaited results of their Destiny 4 trial, which was uh, studying the impact of a new uh, drug modality, an, an antibody drug conjugate, um, which they're calling Enher2, um, on um, on survival uh, of women with HER2 negative breast cancer. So the, 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 the HER2 variety that was not addressable by Herceptin in the past. And they indeed showed that they were able to uh, double the survival of, uh, of women uh, with low HER2 expression levels. So that's a massive, massive contribution um, to to um, the survival and the outcomes of, of women with um, HER2 negative breast cancer, as it used to be called. We're now going to refer to it as HER2 low. And I think in many ways, when they talk about um, standing on the shoulders of giants, you were the original giant behind that um, discovery, which was only announced tomorrow and received a standing ovation to, I think, 25,000 people in the plenary session in ASCO. So great timing to be having that discussion. And I, I hope you draw some satisfaction from that. Indeed, I do. It's very encouraging when, when some, of the, some of our findings actually turn out to be useful for reducing mortalities from a disease. That's a very exciting outcome. But in this case, it's taken four decades before that outcome was realized, starting from um, 1982 when we made uh, the discoveries concerning the new oncogene in protein to uh, 2022 when these results were just announced fortuitously last week. It has been a long four decades, but it seems that immunotherapy has uh, built momentum now. And perhaps I only have two more questions for you. Uh, so my penultimate question is perhaps you can say uh, something um, of encouragement to our listeners who are potentially cancerous sufferers today about the potential for immunotherapy to, to continue to make um, such um, you know, remarkable impacts like NHER2 has just demonstrated this weekend. Well, uh, for a long time, uh, as implied by uh, my earlier discussion, there was the development of a whole variety of drugs, low molecular weight agents that could be applied to a tumor and could uh, often result in uh, shrinking the tumor and often uh, eliminating it. These are various kinds of chemotherapeutic drugs, which are very effective. However, the fact is, for many of these low molecular weight drugs, uh, tumors might shrink, but eventually reappear, and the uh, the cells in the reappearing tumors often exhibited a resistance to killing by these drugs. And that began to provoke the question of whether one could develop an entirely new dimension of anti-cancer therapy. In fact, that has transpired, and over the last decade, it's become apparent that the immune system carries cells within it that are capable of recognizing and killing cancer cells. Uh, on rare occasion, they may succeed in doing so, but we have now developed various kinds of um, treatments where we can potentiate and strengthen the actions of immune system cells to kill cancer cells. And this has resulted in some dramatic uh, responses. For example, there are many uh, patients who had life-threatening melanoma and who were preordained to die within six to 12 months, who now, many years afterwards, are melanoma-free due to the actions of an immunotherapy, a therapy involving uh, the unleashing of immune cells in a patient's body and freeing them, liberating them, 
and enable them to attack successfully and eliminate melanoma cells that may be in their body. This immunotherapy, by the way, uh, represents uh, in, in no small parts the ability of the immune system to dispatch cells throughout all the tissues in the body to identify disseminated cancer cells and to root them out, to eliminate them. To date, this has proven uh, very uh, exciting in the area of most melanomas and in some small cell lung carcinomas. The fact is, however, that to date, these kinds of immunotherapies have had limited utility in the case of most other kinds of solid tumors, that is to say, carcinomas. I, for my part, am very optimistic that over the next several years, we will begin to uncover the reasons why these immunotherapies have not proven effective in other kinds of solid cancers, and we will be able to extend the range of treatments that immunotherapy can offer for a whole variety of different kinds of cancers. I'm generally very wary of making overly optimistic predictions, but to my mind, there's enormous potential in these recently developed immunotherapies to empower them to eliminate a whole series of different kinds of cancers. We're not there yet, but I predict with great confidence that 10 years from now, a whole variety of commonly occurring human cancers will be treatable successfully and maybe even curable by uh, future immunotherapies that are developed over the coming decade. That is incredibly encouraging. I'm excited about the next 10 years, and I feel very fortunate to be a, a student of cancer in your field. So for my final question to you, Bob, um, I've so enjoyed today, and it really uh, is a massive uh, education for all of our listeners to have someone like you on the G Word. I'd love to hear who you would like me to invite to speak to next about cancer biology or cancer therapeutic development um, in your field. Well, um, one person you might uh, interview is Bert Vogelstein. He works at the Johns Hopkins uh, University in Baltimore, Maryland. And he has developed uh, and is developing technologies for detecting small numbers of cancer cells in a patient, which may have the power actually to uh, reduce eventual uh, cancer incidence by eliminating tumors, detecting tumors, before they've had a chance to advance very far. I told you before that in certain kinds of cancers, they're only detected long after they've spread. But that provokes the question of whether one can detect those tumors far earlier in the bodies of patients uh, through a, a direct, cheap, and accurate uh, test and eliminate those tumors before they've had a chance to uh, spread, before they become clinically apparent in the, in the cancer patient. So uh, Vogelstein is, is a pioneer in this area, and he might represent a useful person to uh, uh, interview. That's a great suggestion. I've read many of his papers on cancer pathways, and I also gather that he is a, an incredible rock guitarist. So uh, that's two good reasons. All those things. He can play uh, music on your uh, program for him. <laughs> wow, that would, be, that would be remarkable. But no more remarkable than um, the hour that I spent with you. I think with that, I need to thank you so much for your time. And despite hay fever, I'm really grateful that you got through this uh, call. Uh, I've learned a huge amount from that. And, um, and I should end by saying that that's all for this episode. Thank you to our listeners for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to mainstream of healthcare and to society. 
If you have any views on these topics or have a person in mind you'd like us to interview, do please write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. We really appreciate your support. And so for next time, thank you to our listeners and thank you most of all to Bob for joining us on The G Word. <laughs>